Well, if you got a Bible with you this morning, I do want to encourage you to uh, open it to Acts chapter 6. Uh, we're continuing our study in the book of Acts. And if you were here last week, uh, let me just say that this week uh, is quite different from last week. Uh, last week, we covered 30 verses. This morning, we're only going to cover seven. Uh, also, there's no football references this week, so just uh, let you know that up front. Uh, but we've actually been in some kind of intense passages the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, we looked at the account of Ananias and Sapphira and the judgment that came upon them. Last week, we looked at the story of the apostles being arrested and thrown into prison. We've been in kind of this sort of intense type of uh, what, what's happening in the early church uh, and the civil disobedience that they enacted last week. This This week will seem a little more subdued. Uh, I entitled this message, Church Growth by Church Governance. And you will have to contain yourselves because I know that might be the most exciting sermon title (laughs) you've ever heard. Actually, I kind of feel like we missed a great opportunity this week. I mean, we have a massive theater marquee out on the street. Like if we had to put that title out there, Church Growth, by church governance, uh, this place would be overflowing with people this morning. I I know that. Um, Look, I understand if that title seems a little bit underwhelming to you. Who wants to talk about church governance? How important could that possibly be? Well, as it turns out, it's very important. So follow along with me as I read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. There we go. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word, the word of God, to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Well, I'm going to give you some headings uh, to consider this passage under, but before I do that, I just want to stress again how important this passage is and the principles that we learned from it. I was joking at the beginning about how underwhelming this issue of church governance might seem, but I want you to notice how critical it is for the health and the growth of the church. Notice the way this passage is bookended in verses 1 and verse 7. Verse 1 again says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose by the Hellenists. And then verse 7 says, 
and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the passage begins and ends with a note about the church continuing to grow, the number of disciples continuing to multiply. But what we need to remember is that what took place in between that threatened to undermine the whole thing. Uh, One writer said it this way, as we read the story, verse 7 is not a foregone conclusion. It isn't the natural expected outcome. Had the conflict been mishandled, the ending could easily have read and the word of God was compromised and the disciples divided among themselves. See, that could have been the outcome. Now, a couple of weeks back, we took note of the malevolence of Satan, that he would love nothing more than to destroy the church. And we looked at a couple of ways he's tried to do that in the book of Acts already. But John Stott made this astute observation about this passage. He said, the devil's next attack was the cleverest of the three. Having failed to overcome the church by either persecution or corruption, he now tried distraction. If he could preoccupy the disciples with social administration, which though essential was not their calling, they would neglect their God-given responsibilities to pray and to preach And so leave the church without any defense against false doctrine. So I point that out as a reminder that while the issue of church governance might seem like a small matter, it's not. It is vitally important to the health and growth of the church. So let me then outline for you just four observations that we can make from this passage. The first one is simply that new growth often brings new problems, right? I mean, this is why they call them growing pains. And those growing pains are highlighted for us in verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So we've stopped at a few points along the way in the book of Acts just to to point out the fact or to take note of the fact that the, the church just kept growing and growing and growing. Numerical growth was taking place all around them, that the Lord was adding day by day those who were being saved. But other types of growth were happening as well. Back in chapter four, we saw that the church was generous, it was active, in meeting one another's practical needs. And there it says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So that's a a good thing, right? I mean, the, the, the church is growing. But as the church continued to grow numerically, it brought some challenges to this type of material sharing. And the specific problem was that one group of widows was being overlooked while another group seemed to be getting all of the help. Now, caring for widows was an important thing for the church to be part of. In those days, there was uh, no sort of safety net or social safety net that widows could fall back on. There there, There was no pension. There was no old age security. There's no check that's coming every month to make sure their needs are looked after. If she had no family who could take care of her, 
of her, of her practical needs, then she had no means of survival. Now, God has a heart for widows. In the Old Testament, we read plenty of laws like this one. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. And the New Testament contains similar instructions. James tells us, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The Apostle Paul gives specific instructions about how to decide which widows ought to receive material assistance. Here's what he said. He said, honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So caring for widows and orphans is part of the mission, part of the mandate of the church. And what we read here is that there was a complaint from the Hellenists against the Hebrews. So just a a quick word of explanation about that. Remember, the church at this point was made up only of Jewish people. Uh, We're still in Jerusalem. That's where we are in our study of Acts. The Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews who had settled in Palestine And the Hebrews, or Hebraic Jews, were those who were native to the region and spoke Aramaic. Now, there's no suggestion here that the oversight of the Hellenistic widows was intentional, but really that it was the result of poor administration. There there was an oversight that was taking place. And we know that because the solution is to put good administration in place. The solution isn't hand-wringing. It's not a rebuke and saying, you know, how dare you do this? It was appointing leaders to find and implement a solution. Now, just this idea that new growth often brings new problems is something we always need to be aware of in the church. Uh, I remember about 15 years ago now, when I was still on staff at at Willingham Church in Burnaby, uh, I, I... had a bit of a burden for some of the couples in the church, for marriages in the church, and I, I planned a, a marriage retreat. And uh, it's kind of funny looking back on that now because I spoke, Andy did the music, and Rebecca did the planning. Uh, we're still doing that, that same thing. Uh, but in any case, I remember being quite excited about it because we had over 100 couples register for this marriage retreat, and I was at an elders meeting, and I shared that with the elders, you know, just how exciting this was. We can do some great work and, and, and help some of the marriages in our church. And after the meeting, one of the elders pulled me aside and said, you know, that, that's great to hear, Lee, but are you, are you prepared for this? And I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm prepared. We've got the details figured out. I've got three talks ready to go. And that wasn't what he meant. What he meant was that those sorts of things sometimes have a way of bringing problems to the surface. And he wanted to know if we were prepared to do all of the follow-up that would take place. It was actually a really good question. You know, but my calendar then was, was really filled for the next month with couples who had reached out saying, hey, you know, we're trying to figure out, can you recommend a marriage counselor? Can you give us some help in this area? That's actually, new, new growth brings those kinds of problems. And that's what was happening here in Acts chapter 6. The church was growing, but so was the number of widows needing material help. So what do you do? One of the books that we, read, that we read together when we planted this church was called The Trellis and the Vine. And the basic premise of that book is that every church is a mixture 
of trellis and vine. The vine is what we tend to think of as gospel work. It's the preaching, the teaching. It's the discipleship that's happening. But without a trellis, a vine just sort of grows where it wants to grow. It grows in all different directions. You need a trellis in order to, for a vine to grow in the right way, in a healthy way. You need some structure in place so that you don't end up with just kind of wildness. The difficult thing in church life sometimes is just getting the trellis and the vine balance right. Some churches are great at vine work. I mean, they're great at attracting a crowd. They're great at evangelism. But if they don't put a trellis in place, that growth might not end up becoming something that lasts. Other churches are great at trellis work, but there's not a lot of vine growth happening. They're great at administration. They're great at programs and the like. They spend a lot of time and money maintaining the trellis. But there's nothing new that is growing. And before we actually planted this church, I mean, I I went through a church planning assessment. It was three days, basically, of, you know, these assessors kind of poking and prodding. It was personality tests. It was group activities that we had to do. I I basically hated every minute of it. Um, You know, they'd give us these activities. I'd kind of roll my eyes and think, man, I don't want, that's that's dumb. I don't want to do that. The one thing that came out of that assessment was that when they gave me the official assessment, they said, you know what, Lee, we think you can do this, but we don't think you should do it by yourself. Uh, that was really good counsel. You know, the, the, the old, if it were just up to me, it would be all vine all the time. Right, that old adage that says, you know, when your only tool is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. That, that would have applied. I mean, how do we solve this problem? preach a sermon. How how do we solve that issue over there? Teach a class, right? The situation in Acts chapter six is a trellis and vine situation. The church was growing, but if they didn't get some of this structure in place, all that growth would overwhelm them. So new growth often brings new problems. The second observation is that problems help clarify priorities. The solution that the apostles came up with is spelled out for us in verse 2, which says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. There's quite a bit that we can glean from that verse. I mean, I think it's instructive that they involved the whole church in this process, right? They brought together the full number of disciples in this decision-making process. But the main point of what we read here is found in what the disciples say. And what they say is, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables or to serve tables. In verse four, they go on to say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That's their priority. And this is what I mean about problems helping to clarify priorities. Now, we shouldn't read this as the apostles saying, look, caring for widows is unimportant. It's beneath us. 
what they're recognizing is that they need to give their full attention to the work of prayer and preaching so that the gospel can continue to spread. The fact that they take the time and they appoint seven individuals to look after the needs of the widows among their number is a clear indication that they think this is an important task. They're not dismissing or denying that, but they know what their priorities are. And they see their first priority as proclamation. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. There's a great passage in the book of Exodus that offers a fascinating parallel with this idea of problems helping to clarify priorities. Now, Moses was the leader of Israel at this time. He was the one that everyone looked to for spiritual and practical counsel. And in in Exodus 18, Moses' father-in-law, a man by the name of Jethro, comes to visit him. And what we read in Exodus 18 is sort of a take your father-in-law to work day, right? We have the the take your child to work day. This is like take your father-in-law to work day. I I don't know if that's, you know, ever a good idea, but but that's what what he does. And in verse 13 of that chapter, we read this. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Now, it's not hard to imagine Moses kind of beaming with pride at that point. I mean, like his father-in-law must be really impressed, right? Anyone in Israel has a problem, they come to Moses and they wait all day for him to answer their questions. But here's what it says next. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the peoples stand around you from morning till evening? Right? You could paraphrase that as, Moses, you're an idiot. And Moses said to his father-in-law, well, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the peoples as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties and of tens and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure and all this people also will go to their place in peace. That's great advice. And one of the key pieces of insight that his father-in-law provides is what you are doing is not good. You... And the people will wear yourselves out. In other words, it's not good for you as the leader or for the people you are leading. 
And I think that's true with regard to the ministry of the church as well. To have a leader serving in an area that's not their calling or not their gifting is not good for the leader or for the church. Commenting on this passage in Acts 6, Matt Smethurst said this, A church whose ministers are chained to the ministry of the urgent, which so often shows up in tangible problems, is a church removing its heart to strengthen its arm. I think that's a good analogy. Abandoning or neglecting the ministry of the word in order to meet practical needs is like removing the heart to strengthen the arm. You know, a little, a little while back, uh, we were without someone to give leadership to our communion teams. Someone who would do the scheduling, make sure everything was covered on Sunday mornings. And I just said, oh, you know what? I, I'll do it. I'll take care of that. I, I think I did it for maybe six weeks. I, I couldn't figure out how to use planning center or create a schedule if my life depended on it. So on Sunday mornings, I'd just be like, ah, oh, shoot, I forgot to get someone, you know, to cover the right side. And I just, I'd kind of tap someone on the shoulder. Hey, are you new here? I'm Lee. Like, do you want to serve communion this morning? <laughs> Not quite like that. But I, I was, you know, kind of lost in, in what I was doing. And I remember, uh, maybe it was obvious to, to people who were watching for that sort of stuff. But uh, I remember Corey Denham pulled me aside and, and she said, would you, would you like someone to, to look after this? for you and for the church? I was like, yes. She's been doing that ever since. And and the principle, of course, is that that if you don't want to do something, just do a really bad job of it. Um, I mean, that actually worked really well when Ilona and I first got married, right? I made the bed a few times, and she was like, you know what, Lee? Just just let me do it, okay? No, that's not the principle, though. The principle is that the church functions at its best when people are free to serve in their area of calling and gifting. And I will just say, I am so thankful for a church that places a priority on the ministry of the Word. If, if all of my time was taken up with administration or event planning, the ministry would suffer. Now, I don't say that because any, uh, of any sense of self-importance, but because I know that the teaching that happens in the church is that important. We want to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word, to, 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 to prayer and to preaching. So the problems can help us clarify priorities. A third principle we can glean from this passage is that delegation requires discernment. And this is another way of saying that character counts. So if you go back and look at that Exodus 18 passage, you'll see that, that Moses' father-in-law was onto this as well. He identified the same thing. What he said is, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and hate a bribe. And listen now to what's said here in Acts 6 in verses 3 and 5. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And then in verse 5, when they pick out these men, that's the qualities that they, they look for. Men who are full of wisdom. Men who are full of the Holy Spirit. The qualifications identified here were, number one, of good repute. They had to have a good reputation for their character and for their conduct. 
Second requirement is that they, they had to be full of the Spirit. There had to be evidence that these individuals exemplified the fruit of the Spirit, right? There was evidence of a transformed life. And then thirdly, that they were full of wisdom. There had to be some indica- indication that they would be able to make practical decisions. They could take what they knew intellectually and they could make that re- applicable in the life of the church. Now, lots of biblical interpreters have pointed out that what we have in this passage is probably the beginning of what we call deacons. That The noun deacon, the Greek word is diakonos, is not used, but the verbal form of the word, diakonane, serve, is used. And when the New Testament does list the qualifications for deacons, it certainly emphasizes the need for discernment. This is what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. So there's a set of qualifications, and those are the qualifications. But what does a deacon actually do? Well, we've been working through a process of kind of formalizing our deacon ministry at Crossridge. And one of the things that's really important to remember about the role of, of a deacon is that it's not sort of the, 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 the junior varsity team of the church, right? That elders and deacons do have different roles, but it's not the case that, you know, the elders are the varsity team and the deacons are the junior varsity team. Just think about what this group of seven men was tasked with doing and how important it was. What was the problem that they were called on to solve? Now, the quick answer to that would be to say, well, they were called to solve a food distribution problem. They were called on to make sure everyone received an equal portion or something along those lines. But I would just say the, f- the fair distribution of food to the Hellenistic and Hebraic widows was the presenting problem, but it actually signaled a more significant problem. Listen again to verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. See, the problem is introduced by saying a complaint arose. The real issue that was facing the early church at this moment was an issue connected to church unity. And you could easily see how this situation could have led to a great division in the church. That was an important task the deacons were given to address, or these men were given to address. Now, if these seven were the first deacons in the New Testament church, we ought to hold that office in high regard. And if we have any doubt about that, all we need to do is to keep reading the next couple of chapters in the book of Acts. So we're given the list of men who were selected in verse 5. What they said pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Stephen is one of the seven men who is selected. Here's how the very next passage in the book of Acts begins. 
And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Sicilia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So you see those very qualities, full of the spirit and full of wisdom on full display. And then almost all of chapter 7, 53 of the verses in chapter 7 is a brilliant speech by Stephen. Another one of the seven identified in verse 5 is a man by the name of Philip. And we're going to get to his story in chapter 8. Listen to what it says in verse 4 of that chapter. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. A little bit later in that chapter, Philip finds himself next to the chariot of an Ethiopian official who just happens to be reading a passage from the book of Isaiah. And as he reads it, he doesn't understand it. And here's what happens. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself Or about someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. What we see in Philip is a man who is filled with the spirit and filled with wisdom. He can unpack this prophecy from Isaiah. He says he begins with this scripture, but he knew all of it. And and the point is that these who were selected were not spiritual slouches in any sense of the word. Now, you don't have to be perfect to serve in the church, but I think too often we set the bar too low. We ought to select those who are of good repute, who are full of the Holy Spirit, and filled with wisdom. So delegation requires discernment. Final thing for us to see here is that good governance leads to further growth. So verse 7 gives us the results of the apostles' decision. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, I mentioned the way this passage is bookended earlier. right? It begins with a mention of the, the, the church growing, the number of disciples multiplying, and it ends by describing the numerical growth of the church, the number of disciples multiplying. So we can kind of read it and breathe a collective sigh of relief. The crisis that threatened the unity and growth of the church was averted. That's a good thing. Something to celebrate. But notice that verse 7 actually mentions three things that happened of the decision and the action that the apostles took. Notice firstly it says, and the word of God continued to increase. So so what does that mean? Well, remember what the apostle said in verse 2. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. See, the preaching of the word of God was the thing that fueled the engine of the church growing. To go back to the analogy I mentioned earlier, this is the heart that pumped life into the arm to do its work. 
Because the apostles were not distracted by other tasks, they were able to do the thing they were called to do and the ministry flourished. The second thing verse 7 says is that the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So the church wasn't just sort of able to maintain the status quo, you know, let's keep the converts, we've already won. The number multiplied. But then notice the third thing verse 7 says. It says, and a great number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, as you read through the book of Acts, you find that that those who were converted to the Christian faith came from all walks of life. But how did it happen that a great many of the Jewish priests came to place their faith in Christ? Well, remember what we read at the very end of chapter 5. It said, And every day in the temple... And from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now, the priests would have been schooled in what we refer to as the Old Testament. They knew that a Christ, a Messiah, was predicted and promised. What the teaching of the apostles convinced them of was that Jesus was that Christ, that the Christ was Jesus. Now, just imagine if the apostles had have been taken up with other things. Imagine if they had said, look, you know what? As great as it would be for us to go to the temple every day and to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, you know what? We've got these other pressing matters, right? We've got widows who need food. We've got to give our attention to administration or to food distribution. They might have come up with some great systems. They might have built a great trellis. The thing that wouldn't have happened was the word of God wouldn't have increased. The number of disciples would not have multiplied. And the number of priests would not have been converted or become obedient to the faith. And this is what I mean by church growth by church governance. When a church is governed well, when it has the proper structures in place, when every member of the body performs its function, the church can fulfill its mission and make disciples of all nations. So as we close today, my encouragement to you is actually just to pray for our church. We don't always get the balance right when it comes to trellis and vine Work. People sometimes fall through the cracks. Hurting people sometimes don't get ministered to the way they sh- and cared for the way they should. But if we all commit ourselves to serving in our area of giftedness, the potential for multiplication will be so much greater. So let's just pray to that end. Lord, we recognize that uh, this is your church. And Lord, you have given us not just the message to go and proclaim, but you've also given us wisdom as for how we should take care of uh, the practical things around us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as a church to flourish. We pray you'd help us to grow, that there would be many, that we would be multiplied. Many people would come to faith, that we would find an area of service that we could all serve, all work towards the same goal. And we pray we would not depart from the ministry you've entrusted to us We pray that 
In Jesus' name, amen.